0: get ready to laugh out loud at the tribeca festival june 5th to june 16th in nyc experience hilarious talks comedy specials and feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take Nataro, and more you have to be there get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com did you know the tribeca festival showcases more than just film and tv Now? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I know that's a strange question. If everyone is famous, then no one is famous, right? Or maybe it just depends on what we mean by famous. Last month, I read a New Yorker essay by Chris Hayes, the host of All In on MSNBC, that explored this question in a different but provocative way. Hayes wasn't exactly asking if we're all famous now. Instead, he asked, what happens when the experience of fame becomes a universal possibility? This is the kind of fuzzy idea that bounces around your head for a long time, but you can never quite do anything with it until someone comes around and articulates it so clearly. That's what Hayes did, and I've wanted to talk to him about it ever since. His argument is that the internet has made the psychologically destabilizing experience of fame accessible to everyone. Anyone who's on a social media platform like TikTok or Twitter is always one viral post away from instant fame or what feels like fame, anyway. Most of us don't ever get it, not really, but it's always there. It's always a possibility. For Hayes, this means we're always chasing validation in a place that can never really give it to us because we don't really know or care about the people on the other side of the virtual wall. Like the celebrity interacting with fans, It's hollow and one-sided, and the people liking and sharing our posts are non-persons who satisfy our desire for attention, but they can't quite satisfy our desire for genuine recognition. In this episode, I talk to Hayes about why he thinks it's such a radical shift in human life, and one we've probably underappreciated. We also talk about his own uneasy relationship with fame, and why, like the rest of us, he just can't back away from Twitter. Chris Hayes, welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be here.
0: I've wanted to get you on the show for a while, but I didn't want to bring you on and talk about the stuff you have to talk about every night on your political show. (laughs) And then boom, you go and write a New Yorker essay about Hegel and I have my opening. So here we are.
1: (laughs) There you go. Exactly. There's some part of me that would love to do just like a philosophy podcast if I could. Yeah, that's my next project. But I I think really wrestling with the deep stuff is best done in in a format like this.
0: Well, look, Chris, your day job is covering the political circus every night for MSNBC. Well, most nights. And that's a lot of work. How in the hell did you end up taking a deep dive into the psychology of mass fame? What's the origin story of this piece?
1: Well, I've been thinking a lot about the issues that I wrote about in the essay for a very long time. In fact, I'm working on a maybe a bigger writing project in this vein now. And I mean, I think that you would probably agree that the only way that you really get clarity on your thoughts on something that are deep or rich is to force yourself through the discipline of writing about it. And I wanted to see if it was possible, almost as a kind of challenge to myself, I also wanted to see if it was possible to say anything new or fresh or interesting on the topic, because the discourse around social media, around the internet, is a crowded one. And understandably, it's. I think there's an argument to say that it's like an apocal change in human relations, so it should be crowded. I just found it a very satisfying enterprise intellectually, even above and beyond like publishing it or whatever it was in the world, just to go through the process of trying to order my thoughts on this experience that for me is pretty central, partly because I'm a public figure. So I've gone through the subjective experience of having strangers have opinions about me or have strong feelings about me, which is weird and unnatural in a kind of deep, profound sense, but also is something that, as I argue in the essay, I think is actually being democratized radically and distributed radically throughout The world and around all kinds of people. And I I found the writing of it actually pretty enjoyable because it was scratching some kind of intellectual edge.
0: Well, let's get into it then. You know, obviously, there have been a lot of think pieces about the transformative effects of the internet on society. And most of them begin with the assumption that the biggest change is that the discourse is now more open than it's ever been, that more people have a seat at the table. And that's certainly true. But you do turn this around a little bit and say that the most significant change isn't who gets to speak, but rather what we can hear. Why is our ability to hear more, to absorb more noise and information and content, the most radical shift in our social lives, in your estimation?
1: I think for a few reasons. One is that even though it is the case that more and more people can join the discourse. And I think the people that make the argument about that being positive have a lot going for them and a lot that I'm sympathetic to. I mean, it really is the case that there has been a radical expansion of the voices that are in the media and the kind of old gatekeeper universe has been torn down largely. And there's a lot of good that's flowed from that. I mean, Vox is kind of an example of all kinds of stuff getting published that I don't think would have been published A generation ago, right? At the same time, most people's experience of social media is consuming. And this is just an empirical fact about, like, the distribution of users. Some hilarious percentage of tweets are produced by, like, a very small set of users. I account for, like, an embarrassing number of those, personally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Half of all tweets come from Chris Hayes now. So the kind of modal experience of social media is consumption, is seeing stuff, is getting stimulus about the world. And you're just getting a lot. And, you know, Michelle Goldberg made this point. She just wrote a column on this in the New York Times. But She said this thing to me. She's like, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, people were sending around Christmas cards with their whole family posing with guns. I just didn't know about it. Like, <laughs> I had no, like, it's possible that that's a new thing. It's also possible that's been happening all the time. And now I just see it and I'm like, wow, that's weird. I don't like that. And you're constantly being exposed to some set of stimuli, knowledge about the world that that is, you know, often designed to inflame and enrage. But also just means like there's just a creepy level of surveillance we all have into everyone else's lives. I mean, you know, I say this in the piece that like a not particularly industrious 16-year-old possesses the power to surveil on a level formally reserved for the KGB. I mean, you know, you could just pick someone at random. And I've done this, you know, when sometimes someone will end up in the updraft of the news, you know, and you'll go look at their social media. And before you know it, it's like you've got this picture of this person, (laughs) That is, you know, the kind of thing that an intelligence agency would compile, take a team to compile a dossier of in in a former life. And so we are just constantly inundated with a sheer amount of information and particularly like provocative information about strangers. And that's, that's really the key thing is that I basically think there's two kinds of internet. There's good internet and bad internet. And I don't say this in the piece, but I had a kind of addendum afterwards, which is I think basically my my general rule of thumb, good internet happens between people who have actual relationships where the internet is the medium to stay in touch. So I have a group text chain with some of my best friends that is a source of tremendous joy in my life. <laughs> I've got another chain with other friends who are like also Cubs fans. The ability to send pictures to people. The, I like the fact that there are people that I'm friends with, but not particularly in regular contact with, who I know what's going on in their life. I know what their kids w- were for Halloween. That's a delightful, wonderful form of connection that the internet produces. Then there's bad internet. <laughs> and bad internet is all the stuff that basically happens between strangers. And, you know, some of those stranger interactions are great. And I, I'm i very lucky that I learned things from the internet. People will say, oh, I this happened to me in Virginia, or I was a... EMT on a call, and this happened, and and all that's great. But in the main, I think that the proximity to strangers that's produced by the internet is rubbing up against something very deep in us as human beings and producing some really combustible frictions.
0: Yeah, you know, a key question for me here, at least, is trying to figure out how this new, chaotic, overwhelming kind of discourse isn't merely changing what we can hear. Clearly, it is. But also changing how we think and the sorts of things yeah. we think about. I mean, if you believe that the limits of our language are the limits of our thought in some form or another, then the you know, memeified discourse of social media has probably not been great for our brains or liberal democracy. But I don't know, as you point out, we've heard the same arguments about lots of things like I don't know, like TV not that long ago. So, you know, it's hard to tell what the appropriate level of reaction is here.
1: I basically think both are pretty true, which is, I think that it is a perennial complaint of people who are encountering a new technology, particularly a new medium to communicate thought, to be wary of it, or to focus on its downsides. But also a lot of times they're right. (laughs) And also that there is a profound effect that these various media have. So, I mean, you know, there's a riff in I forget which part of Plato where Socrates is talking about writing as being like the enemy of good thought. And basically he's got a whole thing about like no one's gonna remember anything anymore. <laughs> and and so, you know, the critique goes all the way back from an oral society to a written society. Neil Postman, in Amusing Ourselves to Death, you know, writes about that, writes about the features of thought that were prioritized by an oral society, which was memorization, which is also like its modes of thought were very aphoristic and very mythos-based because those are the things that you could recall from memory. And I think it definitely changed human thought to go from an oral tradition to a writing tradition. For the better, for the worse, I don't know, but definitely changed it. And then I think Postman's argument about going from a a kind of print society, what he calls the U.S., you know, prior to television, fundamentally print society, to a sort of one dominated by TV and the image I think there's a lot to his critique about how it changes the way that we think and it shapes public discourse. Like, I, the question of like what's better, what's worse, what's reversible or not. I mean, Postman is very much a like this is a change for the worse. But to identify that mass modes of discourse produce changes at the very level of conceptualization in people doesn't strike me as far fetched and and seems an idea very much worth taking seriously.
0: I love it. We're barely ten minutes in and we'll. We already have a, a Plato and a Postman reference. This is <laughs> We're off to a hot start here. And we're definitely, I want to come back to Postman. I, I, I've read him quite a bit in the last few years, and I, I really can't get him out of my, my head. But it, let's maybe zoom in a little bit on, on the particulars of your piece, because one of the things I found so interesting about your piece is some of this kind of like individual psychological stuff, right? And you talk about how human beings crave recognition above all else but all the internet gives us really is attention. And that might seem like a distinction without a difference to someone who hasn't read your piece yet or hasn't thought much much about this. So can you maybe explain the difference between recognition and attention and why one is worth pursuing and the other is hollow?
1: Yes. And I think the distinction between that actually is really important and has clarified a lot for me about just the way i feel about things. You know, the recognition riff is drawn from the lectures of a russian expat who went to paris after the bolshevik revolution from a wealthy uh, russian family that fled the bolsheviks named alexander kodyev and he ran this seminar in paris at a school where he he basically did a kind of like week-by-week week exegesis on Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. It was attended by like a who's who of French intellectuals, including Lacan and Sartre and others. The Lacan, by the way, once you read Koyev's exegesis on Hegel, if you do read Lacan, you realize that like a lot of Lacan is just literally ripping off Koyev. Yeah. But he was a weird guy. He was a bureaucrat. He ends up a a very high-ranking bureaucrat in the Ministry of Trade and basically is there at the inception of the EU. And he's got a lot of different theories. But one of the things that he talks about is in his exegesis of Hegel is this basically, what's the constitutive human desire? The constitutive human desire, the thing that makes us human, is a desire for recognition. And his specificity on this is that recognition is to be seen as a human by a human. That he says man can only therefore be social. That basically the reciprocity of the acknowledgement, the gaze, the investment of another human who looks at us and sees us as human is the thing that we crave above all else that is actually what forms us as humans. And I think there's a lot to that. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a a very profound observation that is clarifying for me. And he then goes on to, to sort of talk about the master and the slave paradox of Hegel. And one of the things that he says about Hegel's master and slave, which again this is one of those readings where it's unclear like where the author begins and where the interpretation begins. Hegel's Master and Slave is actually quite short in, like there's not a ton on it in Phenomenology of Spirit, even though it then becomes this huge part of, if you know five things that Hegel did, Master and Slave is probably up there. But Koyev's take on this is it has to do with the fact that like there's this paradox in the Master and the Slave and that, you know, the Slave, because he's sort of brought low by the Master, he's forced to submit. And there's this whole weird thing about like this fight to the death I I couldn't quite crack intellectually, but basically the takeaway I have is that the slave submits and recognizes the master. But fundamentally, the paradox and the kind of tragedy of the master is that that recognition is meaningless because the master doesn't recognize the slave as human. The master is on the receiving end of recognition from a person he himself does not recognize as human. Ergo, that recognition itself can't matter for him. It can't fill the desire he has to be seen as human by essentially an equal, by another human. And I think what ends up happening in the internet <laughs> is that our profound desire for recognition to be seen as human by other humans is the lure <laughs> that we chase, like the cartoon donkey with the carrot in front of us, to go out into the world and say, look at me. Here, I am human. <laughs> I am. This is my humanity. Recognize me. And what we get in a somewhat similar situation to the master and the slave is we get these inputs and likes from people that because they aren't real to us as humans can't actually sate that desire for recognition because we don't see them as humans because they're strangers. They're just people out there in the ether. So we're, we're sort of compulsively chasing this desire for recognition and instead getting attention. And attention is a broader category than recognition. Recognition is a specific and rarefied form of attention. I actually tend to think of it as like, as I've been constructing this in my head, there's like attention's the lowest level, then there's recognition and there's love as like the three ascending forms of, of human engagement. Attention is just someone notices you. Recognition is someone sees you, recognizes you as a person. And love is that someone like feels for you. (laughs) <laughs> and we want to be recognized we want to be loved and we're on the internet getting nothing but attention all the time yeah. because that's kind of all the medium can produce
0: yeah and you know, the language of master and slave is obviously loaded and weird and anachronistic but the analogy you're drawing is you know it's the same fundamental relationship as that between you know the star and the fan or the blue check mark person and the follower right it's the same fundamental dynamic right
1: Right. I write in the essay that like there's this sort of star and fan dynamic, which is to be a star, or to have fans, to have a stranger that notices you is sort of thrilling and getting at some part of your recognition-seeking self, which is, again, at the deepest core of what it is to be human, but not ultimately satisfying in the same way that the in the master-slave dynamic, the slave recognition is not satisfying.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you talk about how we've built this technology that creates a Synthetic version of this most fundamental desire, but really it almost seems like the web creates a synthetic version of human life as such, which is why most of what we do on there feels like this kind of pantomime, but a pantomime that mimics real life just enough to keep us coming back for more and more. And kind of so it goes.
1: Even more than just enough, though. I mean, that I think that's part of what is so tricky about it because you know, there are people that I've Interacted with online for literally decades. <laughs> that I, like here here's an example. Jamel Bowie. Jamel Bowie and I, New York Times columnist, Jamel Bowie and I have met in real life, you know, maybe a dozen times. Ran into him once on Martha's Vineyard. I remember once. He uh he did a book event with me. I used to see him around DC, but like, but Jamel is someone that I've read for over a decade, who I've interacted with, who I've corresponded with about the things that he's writing or the things I'm writing or working on. He's someone that I I feel quite close to in a certain way (laughs) because the internet, I mean, I imagine some earlier iteration, maybe like you know, back when we have all these letters, maybe it would have been that we I wrote letters to him, he wrote letters to me, or something like that. And I don't want to like overstate our closeness. Like we're we're not. <laughs> like I I know him and respect him and feel quite warmly and fondly towards him. But what I'm saying is that there's a kind of relationship there that I have with a bunch of people that again is in that good space that does feel both human but also mostly enabled by the medium. But that's a that's a narrow slice in there. <laughs> And so – but my point is that the genuineness of that, the genuineness that you can feel – or sometimes this will happen. Someone will, will announce some – a child is born to them or some tragedy. And again, you you will feel a genuine feeling of human tug about a person who's fundamentally IRL, a stranger, that you nonetheless feel proximate to, close to, invested in. And again, there's something so profound about that. It's more than to me a facsimile. it's it's actually like playing the same strings that are like the deepest chords of our soul, basically. yeah,
0: you know and I think you're right. We want to be seen by other people with whom we're interacting. Online, we want to be recognized. We demand it, but we can't really get it because it's by and large an unequal relationship. We can only recognize the other. We can't be fully recognized by them. And so it's almost like you have this kind of virtual wall between people online. It collapses everyone on the other side into almost an abstraction, a non person or some kind of like avatar onto which we project whatever we want. And that's enough to satisfy or engage our attention. It's not enough to satisfy. Our soul, and I love that you're you're teasing that out uh, here.
1: Correct, and 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 that point about attention to me, and here's where I've been trying to give a lot of sustained thought to attention because the writing project I'm working on now really focuses on this. Is that there's also something really profound about how attention works, and this is again, this is an area that is very well trod. Tim Wu's book called "The Attention Merchants" gets into some of this, but what I think makes attention so powerful, right? So there's a very powerful market for our attention. But the thing that's really interesting about attention is that A, it's our ability to control it is essentially constitutive of our consciousness as humans. So like the thing that actually makes us human beings is that we can like at will shine the flashlight of mental focus on what we want to. Like if I say to you right now, to the listener, I say, you know, right now conjure the image and the sound of like a sprinkler on a lawn on a warm summer day. You can do that. Well, as far as we know, we're the only species that can do that. (laughs) It's possible, again, this is a long philosophical literature that maybe dogs are running around doing this or dolphins or whatever. But as best we can tell, this ability to at will, right, take the flashlight of thought, shine it on the thing, conjure things, bring them forward, this is essentially constitutive of what it means to be conscious. And yet, there's another part of our attention, what psychologists call pre-conscious attention, that we can control. So, when a siren comes wailing down the street, the siren takes your attention against your will, involuntarily. It's designed to do so. Our lives online are this, like, existential battle. (laughs) You know, like Odysseus tied to the mast as he (laughs) passes the sirens, to wrest control back. (laughs) Of the very thing that defines us as humans, which is the volitional control over our own mental focus as it is constantly being battled for by enormously powerful supercomputers and corporations attempting to involuntarily extract it.
0: It's often hard to tell the difference between real fame and a wave of momentary attention. But what does that even mean? Real fame? That's what I'll ask Chris Hayes after a short break. I want to connect this to the argument, the deep argument that you're making about the psychology of fame, because it's obviously all tangled up. Well, maybe first of all, how do you define fame?
1: Yeah. So I think a simple way to think about fame is to be known by strangers. And the sort of taxonomy that I offer in the essay is that there's sort of three kind of relationships to think about. One is the most normal, fundamental, (laughs) crucial human relationships, which are reciprocal relationships, right? Right. I know you, you know me, <laughs> you're uh, you're my mom or you're the milkman or you're the neighbor or you're a kin or you're a cousin or uncle, right? But in all those relationships, I know you, you know me. That's defining relationships for most of the, whatever, 200,000 years of humans on the planet pre-civilization. And then there's another kind of unilateral relationship, which is that I know a person who doesn't know me. And in some ways, that could be the chief of the tribe. That can be the king. That can be a saint, right? There's, we have some set of figures, I think in any society of any size, that ascend to some level of fame. And I, as the person who's just the humble peasant or whatever, like I know the king. I know what the king's name is. Maybe I know what he looks like. He's on the coin. He doesn't know me. (laughs) Those are kind of the two most common forms of relations that we have. Now, the category of people who are in a third category, which is that people know me that I don't know, (laughs) strangers know me, that's reserved for royalty for a lot of time. Religious charismatics, prophets, great generals, Alexander, right? I mean, these are people that, that achieve fame. And the process of the creation of industrialization and industrial media means that that Category gets larger and larger and larger. Charles Darwin is famous. (laughs) Dickens is famous in his day. Frederick Douglass is famous, incredibly famous. Tolstoy is famous. I mean, these are all kind of, you know, before we get to the television age and then of course television happens. And the category of people that can be famous, that can be known by strangers expands and expands, but it's still tiny and minuscule. This is still like, we're talking top of the, the snow on the mountain, right? The internet suddenly radically distributes that to everyone. Basically, anyone who posts online, there's the potential to be known by strangers, to be seen by strangers, to be commented on by strangers, observed by strangers. And suddenly, this experience, which is to be known by strangers, to have strangers see you, think about you, comment on you, have an opinion on you, interact with you, that is the experience of fame. That's what fame is in my reading constitutively. That becomes radically democratized.
0: So this may seem like a diversion, but I don't think it is. You know, you're a a famous person writing about the psychologically destabilizing experience of fame. So I have to ask, I mean, what is your relationship with your own fame like at this point? Are you comfortable with it? I mean, you've obviously been very successful, but is this what you wanted? This kind of attention, as it were?
1: I mean, I think it's a really funny question question that I don't have a great answer to. Is this what I wanted? Some part of me did, I think. Some part of me didn't know that I did. And some part of me, I think, couldn't have known what it would look like in the end. I think I've always had someone Someone that I know is ex-wife referred to as the show-off demon, which I think <laughs> is a funny phrase. I haven't heard that. I mean, I think I've always had a lot of the show-off demon. I liked I like being the center of attention. I liked being on stage, you know, and again, I think those are personality traits that obviously predate the internet era. So I've always had that. I'd like to perform. I mean, it's funny because I think I'm a little coy in the essay on this That's why I'm
0: asking in part.
1: I mean, in all honesty, I think it is, has been radically psychologically destabilizing and has basically taken years of sustained work to, rigorously attempt to maintain a kind of discipline around it that would result in it not driving me mad. Or not fundamentally curdling and spoiling aspects of myself that I like about myself and want to preserve and enlarge aspects of myself that I don't like about myself and want to minimize.
0: Yeah, yeah, welcome to the club. I, well, you you even say in the piece that like, Famous people, as a rule, are, are pretty obsessed with what people say about them, and that you can hear a, a million different lovely, nice, complimentary things said about you, but a single harsh criticism will linger and linger and linger far beyond that. Honestly, how much does that describe your personal experience online? I mean, do you really pay that much attention to the, the haters or the trolls or whatever?
1: I mean, the the answer is that it used to a lot and now it doesn't. And that again, that is through the process of just like a lot of work put in to be able to, I mean, part of it's just a thickening skin. I think, you know, politicians say this all the time. Like, I'm always amazed at the equanimity politicians (laughs) have about what people say about them. But that's a little bit of a necessary psychological adjustment. You know who also has this are professional athletes who just get very good at dealing with failure particularly baseball hitters. Those are the ones I think about the most because it's an er enterprise in which you fail most of the time. And you also do it a lot, iteratively, play 162 games, go in day after day. And they just develop a psychology where it's like, yeah, I went over four yesterday. Like, go out there tomorrow. Also, (laughs) they have no
0: choice, right? You um, completely fall apart if you're in your head too much.
1: That's exactly right. So, but I think that it's a little bit of both, right? Like, I think it selects for people that are able to do that psychologically. And then there's a certain amount of process by which people get themselves in the right frame of mind to be able to do it. I mean, The best way I could describe my experience of it is there is a Simpsons episode where Bart goes and works for the mob. And at one point, the the mob hijacks a cigarette truck and they store the cigarettes in Bart's room. Homer comes in. He's like, Bart, are you smoking? He's like, no, dad. He's like, I'm going to sit here and make you smoke every one of these cigarettes. You know, it's like cartons and cartons of cigarettes. And that's like an old trope, I guess. People actually used to do that. Like the way to break a kid or a teenager from smoking was to like make them smoke a pack of cigarettes till they turn sick and they hate it. Well, to me, the experience of fame is like, oh, you care what other people think? You like to have other people like compliment you or think highly of you? Like you're you're going to sit here and smoke Cartons and cartons and cartons of cigarettes of other people's opinion on you, <laughs> and that's a little bit of the psychological experience of
0: it. Look, we're f- officially friends now, right? So, <laughs> don't take this right. the wrong way, but you're super online, Chris. You even just kind of alluded to that, right? You're, you're oh, very, I would yes. say, you're more online than you you have to be. Certainly at this stage where you, you've kind of you know made it. You tweet a lot, and I love yes. it. There's a lot of Chris Hayes retweets on my feed. But, 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 but if you can see these dynamics and how they twist and contort our inner lives, why not get the hell off? Or maybe just, you know, step back just a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, so here's the thing. There's certain things I've changed that have made it. So I don't read any replies from people I, I don't follow as a general rule, which is really everything. If there's a specific tweet, sometimes I'll be like, hey, has this happened to anyone? I can go read the replies because, again, that takes it to the level of reciprocal. Like I'm tweeting and the replies I'm reading are people that I follow that I have already invested in, because if I don't do that, it's too much. It's too much. So that has really changed my experience of the platform in a way that it almost kind of apes the feeling of being on a list or or in a group text or whatever, because you're making jokes and you want, like, the people that you know to, like, like them or, like, laugh at them. <laughs> like, and that's a much more normal thing in some ways. You know, and then when I will look at the replies to an individual tweet, I'm always like, oh, my God. You know, because it's, like, some of it's great and nice. Some of it's, like, so nuts. <laughs> Wildly nuts. just complete, like... So, yes. But should I tweet less? Yes. Should I spend less time online? Absolutely. Like... It's compulsive. It's 100% like I'm blessed to not be a person with real addictions, but definitely like I am addicted to being
0: online. I've said it a hundred times on on this show. I I hate myself on Twitter. I absolutely hate myself. I am more often than not the worst version of myself on Twitter, but I can't step away. And, you know, that's the dance all of us are doing. Well, I
1: don't think I like you on Twitter. and I, But I think that the can't step away is like, what is that compulsion about? I mean, part of it is, like, one aspect of the compulsion is that whether they realize it or not, and I think most of them don't, like, there's a huge amount of, like, money, resources, and engineers, like, trying to design a device (laughs) that, you know, that does precisely that. I mean, they made cigarettes more addictive on purpose. They, (laughs) you know, a casino looks the way it does because a lot of talented, smart, industrious people over decades have spent a lot of time studying how to keep people in the casino. And that's why all casinos look the same. No one ever tries something different. No one ever was like, this is my, my, my version of the slot machine. It's not going to be noisy and loud. No, that, that's the every casino looks the same more or less because every casino is trying to do the same thing. And fundamentally, the thing they're trying to do is like pretty deep in the core of our brain stems and who we are such that everything kind of converges to the same baseline.
0: You know, I keep thinking about why that sting of rejection is so much greater than the euphoria of approval. And not just for someone like you, I, I'm really talking about all of us, because I do think this is true for most people, famous or non-famous. It's certainly true for me. And I recently happened upon our passage from Robert Wright's book from a few years ago, but I think it's called Why Buddhism is True. It's a great book. It is, and one of its points is that look, you know, we're 21st century creatures walking around with this cognitive software that evolved under wildly different conditions. When we were barely upright primates, yep. now we're just you know apes with calculators. So why the hell should we care if somebody online says something shitty about us? We don't know them, we won't see them again. It's all so obviously dumb and forgettable. But like you say in your essay. When we were hunter-gatherers living in these small tribes, the opinions of other people meant everything. And these were the people we know and we would see every day until we died. So their opinions really mattered. So we're still stuck with that psychology, even though the circumstances are totally different.
1: I think that's right. And I think our social conceptions, I mean, it's just fundamentally built on reciprocal relationships and being invested in people. I mean, can I ask you a question? Can I turn the tables for a second? Sure. You don't strike me as a person with like, the show off demon. You don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know, hardly know you at all, but I know a little about your bio. I followed your work. Like what is your pre-internet relationship to public eyeball? Like for me, I acted in high school and I liked being on stage. There was a certain level of wanting other people's attention or focus, you know, before I ever touched twitter.com. But I'm curious what your experience of like, was that before the internet?
0: I didn't really have one. You know, I mean, I, I don't have a theater background or anything like that. I've never been drawn to the stage or performing in that way. I mean, I, I played sports up through high school, but that was it. And then before I became a journalist, I was an obscure academic, just toiling away reading you know, Camus and Nietzsche all day. And no one cared what I thought. I wasn't on Twitter and no one read anything I wrote except for like the people of my committee. And that was it. And then I was kind of thrust into journalism and I've slowly become more and more visible, but I'm, I'm not what I would call famous but that impulse the impulse to be seen the impulse to be thought clever and smart that's all there and i feel it it's tugging on me all the time and it's a source of some i think shame i wish i cared less than i do i'm working very hard about caring less about these things but i still do and and i can't lie about that i try to be honest about it but it's it's there it's there
1: yeah it's there i mean i what are these dynamics like in places Like academia is an interesting environment in which you get a little bit of this (laughs) pre-internet. And I think some of the psychopathologies of academia are are aligned with what the internet does, right? Because academia is a place where like you can kind of be known by strangers, which is that someone in your subfield reads your thing and, and comments on it. And I think a lot of the Incredibly psychologically fraught nature of academia has to do pr- with precisely that, precisely the precisely the dynamic that that was there even before the internet. That in some ways academics were tasting, you know, before we all were.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, let me to get us back on the tracks here a little bit. Something you do hit upon in the essay, and it's certainly something I think about a lot, is how this is impacting young people, right? And and you mentioned. There's a lot of polling that shows fame is a core objective for people 25 and younger. Even though fame, real fame remains elusive, it feels like a perpetual possibility. You're always one viral TikTok removed from celebrity and you know you call this a pyramid scheme, which I thought was a a very interesting way to describe it. Uh, what did you mean by that? In what sense is it a, a pyramid scheme?
1: Well, I think in the way that a pyramid scheme it's like it succeeds as long as you can get other people to buy into the con. And then at a certain point, it all, it all falls apart. I <laughs> yeah. mean, if, if you can get enough people to pay attention to you and then they in turn can get enough people to pay attention to them, like that's in some ways, that's, you know, the promise of fame in, in particularly TikTok, which I think the crazy thing about TikTok is that unlike Instagram or Twitter where you select your followers so people sort of build up these followings over time and the algorithm just does everything in tiktok and you can literally do a thing in your kitchen for 15 seconds and 4 million people can see it the next day like (laughs) that's a completely different level than like i was listening to some dude was describing to me some college kid they knew who did something on like a On a ski lift, and then like four million people saw it, and now he's got a deal with Chipotle. Oh, that's just (laughs) perfect! Made me laugh so hard. So I think that like the promise of it functions in the way the pyramid scheme, which or you know, multi-level marketing, or you know, like if you can get other people to invest in this attentional economy, you'll be rewarded, and they'll pass it along to the people they're trying to get to invest in the attentional economy, and on and on and on. It's feeding on hopes and dreams, all the same. Yes. Again, I mean, this is one of those places where I'm sort of equally torn between two impulses, which is like one is won't someone think of the children? And the other is like, ever was it thus that people think that whatever the new technology is is going to be the ruin of the youth? And, you know, am I just falling prey to that trap? And again, really part of the project of the essay is to try to be real specific about what is new and what is not. But I do think, I think the data reflects this, and I think anecdotally, like qualitatively, if you talk to teenagers, like the degree to which they are aware of the promise of fame is way more present than it was for us, for sure. I think that's like undoubtedly true.
0: No doubt. And we're both parents, and this is something that terrifies me about my son's future, right? That to live in the world, he is going to live, and that he lives in now, he will either surrender to these incentives or be weirdly estranged from his peers and his culture. And I have no idea what to do about that or how to raise him in that context. I I guess like everyone else, I'm just going to have to figure it out on the fly.
1: I I feel precisely the same. I mean, I think we sort of oscillate between these moral panics about like screen time. And if your kid watches 61 minutes of screen time, they're going to be like a zombie vegetable. And if they watch 59 and like you're a good parent and like there's all this stuff as folks try to navigate it, particularly, I think, in these relatively high social capital, affluent parental cohorts where there's a lot of class anxiety, basically about like raising up, you know, children who are going to excel, succeed, that there's just a million different impulses, you know, at once. I mean, I, I will say that to have the courage of my conviction on this, I think the shift is so apocal, again, is so totalizing. I think it's a shift that's on the scale of the shift of the dawn of industrial capitalism, that everyone's going to live life inside it. (laughs) Like, you know, if you raise a kid inside the dawning of industrial capitalism, like they're going to be part of the wage system. (laughs) Like there's really no way out of it. You know, I mean- yeah. They could maybe move to a farm or a commune, you know, here and there, religious communities have sort of dropped out of it. But by and large, like the kid's going to grow up and get a job in the economy where they will be paid a salary or a wage. That's just the way that every institution, the totalizing institution of society is structured. And I think that's basically true about this aspect of society as well.
0: what it means to be famous is always changing, always evolving. So maybe we need a new definition of fame for the digital era, where almost anyone can appear on screens and news feeds at any time. I'll toss this idea at Chris after one more short break. You mentioned Neil Postman a little while ago, and his core idea, really the core idea of media ecology as a field, is that our our tools of communication shape and reshape us. We become more and more like them. And part of what you're saying, I think, is that the internet has universalized the TV era conception of fame. But if Postman is right, the internet, like TV, isn't just changing us. It's redefining fame, perhaps, in a way that could only be possible in the digital environment. And I don't know, maybe fame becomes so hollow and common that people will start to care less about it. Uh, But I don't know, maybe I'm being too optimistic.
1: That's a, no, that's a brilliant thought. I mean, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I think there's something to that, that we're still so early enough in this era that like we have TV conceptions of fame as a category, just like what its conceptual architecture is what the mass use of the word means and how we all understand it that's shaped by that technology even as it grows outdated. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think there might be something too. Maybe just like ends up vitiating the category that it, it no longer coheres in a world in which all of this stranger action happens. The other thing I think is also possible is that kids you know, people get more adept using the tools so as to guard against, basically to curate an experience of good internet versus bad internet. And I do think you see a lot of that. I do think like all of the various ways that teenagers have different accounts for different social circles and some are private, like that what they're doing is they're using the tools available to produce different tiers of relationships that they can have some self-conception of the value of. And that's a very optimistic take. But I do think there's some of that happening. I do think, like, there's a sort of sophisticated set of social categories being constructed by teenagers in their online life that is informed in some ways by this distinction between what feels good and what feels bad. And what feels good is you and your four best friends trading selfies where you tell each other you look dope. Kids don't say dope anymore. (laughs) You're so old. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Where you look groovy. Word. No. (laughs) Like trading selfies with your four or five best friends where they say you look hot and you feel good about that. And that those are the parameters of that peer interaction. And that's a good feeling. Yeah. And you've curated a little universe where that can happen. And it's not some rando or bully or other person saying something gnarly. And I think that That's part of also what's developing kind of naturally in the practice of this.
0: Yeah, look, I'll say this. For most of human history, the world we died in looked basically the same as the world we were born into. And that limited our horizons. It put human culture and human psychology on a steady foundation. Now things change so rapidly that we don't recognize the world we were born into by the time for teenagers. And I'm not sure we can overstate or even understand how psychologically unmooring that is, both for individuals and for societies. I think that's kind of what we're dealing with right now.
1: I've been rereading a lot of Marx for this project I'm working on and and the labor theory of value and alienation and what he meant by alienation, which has a lot of different aspects to it. There's sort of a technical meaning of it, which is just that like the fact that the fruit of your labor is not your own at the end, it's alien to you. But then there's a deeper sense in which he's talking about it, which is gets closer to what our common use of the word is. And obviously, he's writing in German, so this is translated. But which is like a sense of strangeness, a sense of estrangeness, a sense of you're separated from something that should be yours, or you're, or something that should be yours is outside of you, that you're like looking at, and you feel alienated. <laughs> and part of what Marx is identifying, I think, is in a unifying theme of the work is the profound strangeness <laughs> of the conversion of a society from feudalism to capitalism. That it, it does all kinds of things to the social arrangements that had endured that are new and weird. <laughs> I mean, there's always a, a profound moral undercurrent in some ways more in angles than in Marx, but there's always a profound moral undercurrent about the, you know, evil nature and the sort of exploitative nature. But But as a technical description, it's most of the work revolves around technically describing the profound strangeness of a complete alteration of the societal relations. And I do think there's something on that level happening now that, again, produces something like what he was talking about with alienation. When you're talking about that, like, the weirdness of it all that we're all sort of experiencing.
0: Yeah, look, you... You mentioned Socrates bitching about you know the development of, of the written word. And you know, going back to the printing press, people, especially the olds, have always fretted over the world-destroying effects of new technologies, you know, most recently TV and now the internet. Is there a chance that we're overreacting here, that we're making the same doom and gloom noises that every previous generation makes when faced with, you know, a world kind of slipping away from them, or that's becoming just unrecognizable.
1: Yes. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> a possibility. In fact, I find myself like I there is a, a whole bunch of like a kind of counter, you know, you know how a news cycle works where like there's like a take and then the counter-takes and the of counter takes Oh, yes,
0: my friend. It's yes, yes. yes. I, I drink it <laughs> yeah. in every day.
1: Yes. I mean, I was finding myself sort of drawn to some of the like counter-takes on Facebook that this is a moral panic, that. It's not that different from what other media are doing for all kinds of reasons. Like, I think there's really something to that. And I think, I don't know, you know, in the end, I'm not sure. I really don't know. (laughs) It's hard to know your place in the universe or in history at the moment that you're living it. I do think if you try to take a step back and again, think about this in terms of institutional material and social relations and forms of human organization, that there are new things happening on that front. And whether they're good or bad or whether they're radically transforming, I think that remains to be seen. But like there is a newness there that I think you can pinpoint and that's not nothing.
0: Well, this may be too big a question to end on, but I think it's fascinating to ponder the long-term political implications of all of this. I mean, I, I think the Neil Postman's and the Marshall McLuhan's of the world were right to say that TV and the culture of imagery would warp and trivialize our politics.
1: Absolutely.
0: But the expansion of fame in the internet era that you're thinking and writing about, the pervasive obsession with engagement does seem equally transformative. And Trump, Trump is in so many ways, a perfect bridge figure for this moment because he's both a creature of TV and the internet. And his success has accelerated all of these, what I think are corrosive trends. Cultural celebrity is increasingly indistinguishable from political celebrity. And you can see politicians chasing fans the way B-list stars always have. It's so wild. It's the same damn game. And I don't know what Trump 2.0 will look like or what the dim equivalent of that will be. You know, hello, President Oprah. I I, I don't know. But the direction we're heading seems pretty clear. And I don't know. I, I guess I'm just curious what your sense of that is. Do you even see the obsession with fame as a politically significant event? Or am I just doing the thing that I always do, which is turn everything into some kind of paradigm
1: shift? No, because I think that, again, when we try to, like, think, okay, well, what's new and what's not? I mean, the United States never elected for president someone who had never had any public service or military service before, ever. There was something new that happened in the election of Donald Trump. Like, the man had never held or run for elected office. He had not been some prominent military figure That's it. That's the sum total of categories that had previously existed as qualifications to be president of the United States in 240 years. Something different did happen. And the thing that happened was fame, was the thing that qualified him (laughs) and made him viable. And I would say that was necessary but not sufficient. But I think a huge part of my thinking on this was informed by that experience because, you know, his need for attention is like a black hole. It sucks in everything around it. It's a need so great. I mean, it, his need for attention is so great, it's almost, it can't be described in words. It's like the sublime. It's like, it's such a sucking vortex that it pulled an entire society into it. <laughs> that's, how, that's how powerful it is. It's like truly a marvel. And there's something about that, I agree. Like when you look at all these other people, you know, Ted Cruz is a podcast. It's like, what do you like? Matt Gates has a radio show. It's like everything is content. Everything is posting. It's shit posting. It's increasingly a certain form of politics. Just is that is attention, is eyeballs, and that to me is a really grim development, but a very distinct one. I did, actually did a monologue on this the other night. You know, back in the day, there were like shock jocks, and their whole shtick was to say outrageous things. <laughs> you know, there's sort of an illicit thrill in this thing, outrageous things, and that and got attention, and it drove controversy, and it got listeners. But, like, that was not the role of the U.S. senator from Ohio. And now you've got a situation in which, like, the day after Alec Baldwin is involved in this, like, horribly tragic accident in which a woman has died, people are grieving. J.D. Vance, who wants to be the next Ohio senator, is, like, posting on Twitter, like, Jack, you got to let Trump back. I got to hear the Baldwin tweets. I got to read the Baldwin tweets. And it's like, that's shock jock stuff. Like, there's nothing like particularly like novel or funny or or interesting about that. It's just striking to be out of the mouth of a person who wants to be a U.S. senator. Like, there's always been some role in the media ecosystem for someone to say something like disgusting and outrageous, but not the person who's going to represent, you know, 10 million people in one of the largest states of the union. And yet here we are.
0: It's all shitposting, kids. That's it. Well, on that very happy note, I just want to say to listeners, go read Chris's essay in the New Yorker. It's it's fantastic. It's a lovely meditation on, I think, something we can all connect with and, and relate to. And you should watch his show every night on MSNBC. And this has been a real delight, Chris. Thank you so much.
1: For me as well, Sean. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: vox conversations is produced by eric Janikis. our editor is amy drostovska paul robert mouncey mixed and mastered this episode our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious breakmaster cylinder and amber hall is the deputy editorial director of vox talk and thanks to victoria dominguez the vox audio fellow for her help on this episode if you like the show let us know room for improvement we want to hear that too We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.